It's a bird. It's a plane. No, wait. It's another action-packed Free Jacks Festival. On April 30th, we're thanking the many heroic first responders in our community with our Heroes Among Us Festival. Join us at the vet to watch the boys take on our arch nemesis. Oh, that's a very comic book. I'd love it. The New York Ironworkers in the 2023 Chowda Cup Decider. We'll also be hosting a third annual youth non-contact rugby tournament, Flag Frenzy, and of course, our amazing Mac and Cheese Fest. Country Music's rapidly rising star, Alexandra Kay, will be headlining the festival. Hopefully, we'll hear her sing Damn It from Blink-182. You know the deal. Get your tickets at freejacks.com. Time for the show. Let's ride. Former U.S. National Rugby Team Captain. Team Captain. Head Coach and General Manager. General Manager. Now, the co-founder and CEO of the New England Free Jacks. Now. Now. Full Contact CEO with Alex Magleby. Hey, everyone. Thank you for joining Full Contact CEO today. I'm your host, Alex Magleby. I'm also co-founder and CEO of the high-flying New England Free Jacks and Heritage Sports Ventures. Today, I'm joined by a legend of Irish rugby, the artist formerly known as the mullet, Shane Byrne. He represented Ireland 41 freaking times. He played on the 2005 British and Irish Lions Tour to New Zealand. You can tell you can find Shane running his family business, Arclo Waste Disposal, playing the links as an ambassador for executive global tours, exec global tours, and even occasionally he'll do a bit of acting. Well, you're a man of many talents, Shane. Welcome to Full Contact. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Looking forward to a chat. It was great to have you. And just everybody knows he's on vacation right now in Spain. He was kind enough to jump on, but probably like I go on vacation, I schedule all these podcasts so that I don't have to hang out with the family. I think that's what's yeah. happening. It's <laughs> Don't say anything. <laughs> Brilliant. We're going to play a bit don't of a stairs. <laughs> Yeah, don't. Literally. I got to get off this podcast now. <laughs> We're going to play a bit of a word game, and I'm going to just say a, a one word and just what comes to mind, okay? Wicklow. Home. Mullet. Hair. Amazing. Have you met Kyle Sakara yet? He's our he's a prop for the Free Jacks. Amazing. I mean, he's got maybe the best mullet in the history of the mullet universe. It's amazing. I'll introduce really? you today when we convince you to come to Boston. Yeah, yeah. Now, now, I think mine isn't exactly looking very flashy now, as I said, out for a shuffle earlier on, so. It looks good. Showered up and stuff like that. It looks great. I, I mean, the, the, it's just fantastic. They're out getting a shuffle, a little runaround, which is great. Lions tour. Mixed emotion. Interesting. I'm, I'm excited to jump in on all this. You grew up in Wicklow. Wicklow's on the East Coast. Where, where's Wicklow? East Coast, just directly down from Dublin. I'd be an hour away from Dublin. What, what's, what's life like in Wicklow? Fabulous. The Garden of Ireland, brilliant place to grow up. Real community spirit, all the Irish sports, Gaelic and football, hurling, medics, community game, all community-based stuff. Just a really, really fantastic place to grow up. Rural, small town? What? Yeah, the town I was from was called Ockram. Very small town, very rural. Obviously, like everything else in the crazy Celtic tiger that we had, it grew a little bit more, but it still yeah. kept it. Still kept its identity and, uh, you know, there's nowhere else I'd like to go just to chill out and relaxes. That's awesome. Get, in, get into my local bar parties and have a few pints. That's brilliant. Are you still, is the family still there? Are you guys in Dublin? The family are still there. I live probably about 20 minutes away. 
Okay. Yeah, not too far away. Primarily farming and tourism, or what are the industries in that area? Farming is the main. Yeah. yeah. There's a there's a couple of wood pulp industries and things like that, but it's it's mainly mainly farming, very heavily. So did you grow up doing Gaelic sports and rugby? Did you pick up rugby later? Like did you just rugby? Do- yeah, rugby later. So I grew up in Auckland County Wicked with all of the sports that I just mentioned. And then I went up to school, up to Dublin, boarding school. Yeah. To Black Rock? Yeah, to Black Rock. And I was first introduced to rugby there and I was absolutely terrible at it. I could not get my head around it at all. And That's the great thing about rugby. You can be terrible at it and still become I know, yeah. I was still enjoying it. Still enjoying it. But like I was on the, like the, it was 13, 12 and 13 when I started and I was on the under 13, like barbarian because I didn't want to go down the letters too far to the team that I was on. I didn't want H and I. Yeah. <laughs> and so it, it, it took a long time to, for rugby to click, but it did event. That's it. That's it. Were you, was Eddie there at Blackrock when you were there? When was, was, was Eddie O'Sullivan at Blackrock then? Was that when Eddie was there? So Eddie O'Sullivan was in Blackrock Rugby Club. Okay. Okay. Not yeah. the college. No, he was never in the college. He, he was in the, in the senior club. Okay. So when I, when I finished in Blackrock school, I went down to the Blackrock Rugby football club. Okay. That's where Eddie was. Okay. Had the uh, like uh, academy system started up then? Was that part of the deal? Was it still very club-based? Like No. Remember, I'm very old. There was, there's nothing like that. So I would have left school 89, 90 and went up to the club, which would have been just the under-19s at Club Rugby. It was yeah. representative stuff. Like there were Leinster on the 19s, there was Irish on the 21s and things like that. And yeah. they basically served as academies back then, the, the equivalent. But yeah. I remember the game, the, the game was still four plus years away from going professional. So like the right. thought structures wasn't in it. It was all just about representative rugby and enjoying, you know, playing the game. So, you know, you finish on the 19s, you went up, you weathered the storm playing with the big boys for a little while and then you oh. got into the senior team and that, that's where you get going. Yeah, you had cut your teeth in that. I mean, I, I remember t- Correct. Gary Owen in the mid-90s. We went on a tour yeah. and just getting absolutely lessons taught underneath piles, on top of yeah. piles. Just, just, just the way we like it. <laughs> exactly, like literally. It was like this thick of mud, but still somehow the Irish fellows were certainly fast in it, so it seemed, so it was, which, was, which was brilliant. So then how did you go from, you know, playing for BlackRock into the, the Leinster setup? How did, how did that work? So the way it worked is that they, I played a season for the BlackRock senior team. And then at the end of the year, it was a end of year mini tour kind of thing. Back then, you see, Leinster wasn't, it, it wasn't the way it's structured now. Ireland was very much still club dominated, kind of like the English setup. Yeah. And uh, that the club was the main concentration. Club had and real that, estate, it had the pub, it had the... Yeah. And then you would go representative and you'd play only a handful of games for Leinster. There'd be interpros where we played the other provinces. Yeah. And maybe a touring side, things like that. And, and that was it. And everything else, the rest of your year was spent with the club. So it was majority with that. So played a season with that. And at the end of the 93 season, I, I stepped up into the Leinster squad and Started there and thankfully it worked out very well. And yeah, I was there for 14 was years that, and then on in. Well, professionalism obviously officially happened after the 95 World Cup. 
Yeah. Were people being paid under the table in the, you know, those early years? Like what was happening? Yeah, not so much, not so much in Ireland. There was a few, you know, bits like lads been taking care of expenses and things like that. But it was happening. Like I was on that work up in 95. I was down there with the Irish team and, um, you know, to see the difference, like that was a real grown up stage. Like the game had essentially gone professional in the Southern Hemisphere. What would you say? A season and a half beforehand. Okay. And every everybody was on like so-called boot contracts and everything yeah. like that. They were finding ways of, of getting payments through. But, and it was so obvious. You could see the scene change between guys who were training all the time and the rest of it. Because they were trying and to prevent I, them all from going to rugby league at the time, right? Correct. And there was also, there was almost a rebel league when the game of professional from the Southern Hemisphere that it could have taken rugby union in a completely different route altogether with the Rupert Murdoch set up yeah. with that. and thankfully it didn't and but it was very obvious that the game had to go pro so I was very lucky to be in the right place at the right time when it did to get offered there were 30 contracts given out in Ireland and thankfully I was one of them uh, we were the first professionals in the country which was absolutely amazing experience like very little financial gain but uh, listen you're getting paid to do what you were going to do anyway yeah you love the game <laughs> And you got a car underneath your, your butt and, you know, a gym to go train in. It wasn't exactly a lot of structure, but it was fantastic. It was Did that allow you then to train full time? Did that kind of replace having to, you know, do additional work on the side or? Yeah. So me personally, I, I studied mechanical engineering and I had just started working as a draftsman and I actually had gone back to college to do building services engineering and the contracts were offered and I was gone. There was no, there was no second thought and it was such an opportunity. You know, it was, it was rumored and whispered about for about a season and a half. And then when you're offered it, look, it, it was a no brainer. Yeah. And in fairness, you always had the things to go back on and stuff like that. But yeah, there's a lot of guys that didn't, a lot of guys who were a little bit older that chose not to take except contracts. Yeah. You know, it was a big decision back then. Nobody knew if it would last and these yeah. could see guys would put in seven, eight years of work, you know, in their trades, you know, engineers or whatever the hell yeah. they were. And they just couldn't step away. And, uh, you know, the professional game at the start could have looked quite a bit different if these guys had played. But predominantly, right. it was the younger guys from the four provinces who got the contracts. And yeah, look, it took a long time for it to settle in. Like we had a lot of growing up to do, but also the, the management did because the, the Alicadoos took a long time to come around to the that way of thinking it was yeah. still you know i remember six nations in 97 against wales i think it was and there were four buses outside the team hotel to go to the game and the fourth bus was for the team the first three buses were for the alicadoos and the wine yeah they, they were the important <laughs> one That's... and that was the priority list so it took it all the suits yeah, yeah it, it took a while for it to get around in the 90s was a pretty pretty barren stage for Rugby, we, we weren't going well, but come to 2000, yeah, we were starting to get where we needed to be. When you guys were contracted, so the contract was through the union, what did, you know, the, the national union, did you, did everybody then who was playing for Leinster at the time have a contract or was kind of, you know, a few of you were, and then a few of you, a few of the guys were amateur and training yeah, at type of thing? That's exactly what happened. Uh, so basically the way it was, was that, as I said, there were only 30 Contracts given out throughout the, throughout the country. So that was to serve the four provinces. So it was a handful from each province. 
and basically you trained full time, but the structures weren't there. It wasn't in place. There's no real base. And you were essentially still training full time with your club. You would be there training on the Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and you would fit in extra sessions during the week. You know, not very structured. But certain coaches came in and started to improve it. And, you know, a lot of steps needed to be taken before we started to reap any sort of benefits from us. So, yeah, like the, the Lencer team in the late 90s would have been 50-50, you know, amateur profession. When did you get, so on a weekend, would you play for your club or would you play for the province? They, they were starting to fill the provincial diary, but yeah. it wasn't full yet. So, yeah, you were still playing full-time as much as you yeah, could like with pro, pro yeah, you. Pro stuff didn't exist at the time, obviously. No, not, nothing even close to that. Yeah. And so we, it was still playing, yeah, full time with, with the club. We were playing week in, week out with the club, barring every now and again when there'd be a representative, something yeah. like a, like an A game or, you know, things like that. And you would be gone just for that, but then back to the club. Yeah. And that's when I was starting to kind of my, my pre-international career, but really at the time still, it was more is better at all, at all costs. Everything was more so. You'd show up to a training and it was full noises the whole time. You're running into each other, more, 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 you know, more yardage, you know, more contact. And then you'd play the game and the, the night was the exact same. It was more drinking, more, it was, everything was just more. It seemed like it was, everything was hard and more of it. Yeah. The only thing that yeah, wasn't yeah. more was like sleep and recovery. Was yeah. it like that at the time for you? Yeah, yes. no, it was like that. It was, but you were able to do more. You know what I mean? The capacity to take more punishment and to give more punishment was still happening as well. And uh, yeah, but like what you're saying there is that it, it took a long time for the game to catch up to where it could be and the structures that needed, like, you know, not alone did the players take strides, the coaching staff took enormous strides. And that's the thing that, you know, people try to compare the games between now and then and even further back or even more recently. And one of the things is that they they Makeup of the players is still the exact same, but the coaches have got better at their job as well. Yeah. That has to be taken into account. Yeah. You know, if you were coached with the structures, if we had that back in the late 90s, God, you know, maybe we could have achieved something. Right. But, you know, that didn't happen back then. We would get our ass kicked now with, by one of those teams. <laughs> like a modern team versus an old team, you know. Yeah. A modern team would just run circles around us. Well, it was just the, the, the fitness, you see, like, the, you know, it, it, it took all that time for it to go. What it is now is that, you know, pretty much any player can go for 80 minutes. Yeah. And fatigue is taken out of uh, defensive structures, essentially. And that's the difference in the game now. Whereas you, you would always, you would get a superbly skilled back who would just, towards the end of a game, pick out a poor knackered throat roar. And just run around them. And that's, yeah. you know, games were decided on these things. I had a coach in the early 90s who basically, yeah, said, if, if I have a blanket, I want to see all eight forwards under that blanket that whole time, right? And that's how we were being coached. Yeah. Uh, efficiency and, you know, one, three, nope. three, everything. Yeah, breaking up into pods. Yeah. Look, it, it, the game changed. It was very much, very much by the, you know, the copy or color or whatever way you cliche you want to do it. But, you know, then you start to see patterns coming into the game, structures, defensive structures, and then the rugby league influence came into the game because obviously they had donkey's years more experience and professionalism that we had having gone, you know, 
professional years beforehand. And a lot of the defensive structures that the rugby union defense is based on now is around what rugby league was playing for years. And, and that's that you have to be very fit to play that style to defend yeah. like that. And that just started to drive the things forward. And then the more numbers started to increase. And then thankfully the RFU made the decision to go completely provincial and uh, professional. And uh, you stepped away from the clubs, which more is the pity. There, there was, you know, unfortunately, it's still a little bit forgotten, the amateur game in that respect. But they went and Ireland ended up with the perfect professional structure, which is yeah. IRFU on top that owns the four provinces, which work semi, you know, autonomously. They, they can make their own seasons or everything like that, but they're supported by the RFU, yeah. which is an absolutely fantastic way for professional rugby to be, as we can see. As we can see now with the problems happening over in England with the Premiers. Exactly. And how well the, the, the provinces have done at the professional level, as well as the, the national team you know, yep. outside of World Cups. Your first cap is very special. One's first cap is very special. Mine was Millennium Stadium right after they built it. Awesome. Awesome. Where did you get your first cap? Romania? A classic. Classic fixture, Romania away. <laughs> I'd waited a while. I'd waited a while. I was starting to get a bit concerned. I only want to get a cap when the other team is wearing yellow. That's all. That's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What happened was, the, I'd, as I said, I got into the Irish squad at the end of the 93-94 season, and I was never really out of it. and got a lot of tours all over, but could never get that step onto the pitch. I wasn't exactly the flavor of the month at the time. Twice I came back from tour, came back from the 94 tour to Australia, the last true amateur tour. I was told to get my hair cut. I said, no, drop immediately out of the squad. It happened again in the 90s when I came back, when I came back from the 95 World Cup. Well done, great tour, get your hair cut. No, gone out of the squad again. I should build myself back up into it. So I was starting to think it wasn't going to happen. And then thankfully, everything came about that in 2001, I got my cap off the bench against Romania. Yeah. Just an absolutely amazing experience, but particularly because it was my stag. I was getting married six days, which for anyone organizing a wedding, that's a perfect time to organize your wedding. Yeah. Six days that's after your first cap. After your first cap. You might be injured. You might not be. It's okay. Yeah. Well, you certainly won't be sober. Yeah. <laughs> so, Everybody will be happy. So yeah, an amazing day. So there were 30 of my friends over there in us and we played in this. Is this in uh, Bucharest? Yeah. So we played in this kind of amphitheater, kind of a stadium, with a lot of concrete, this is not like concrete territory. This is like Bucharest right outside of the Cold War. This is not, it's like Correct. eight, nine years out of the, out of the Cold War. It was not. Yeah. Correct. And there was only in this 60,000 seater stadium, there was probably about a thousand people out, maybe two. My, but you know. And we your friends. Yeah. But the noise that my group made was just unbelievable because they were on the absolute tear and they had been, they were on my stag from the Thursday and this was the Saturday. Okay. They had been having my stag while I was sitting in the hotel. Yeah. And uh, so they went up and uh, they Good friends. Me, Good they, friends they, that. They tell me a quick story that they went up and they asked for, uh, give me a couple of those beers, whatever it is you're serving. And your man went, that however many lay with the local currency. And they went, can I have 30 pints of that, please? It was like 20 pence, which would be less cent for a beer. Yes. So they had a caravan of beer going back and forth, and they just were having a ball. And guess where, when I eventually came on, 
where the first line out I ever threw. Right in front of them. Right in front of them. Now, I have been in stadium with 80,000 people throwing a ball five yards from my line, two points up in a game, and I've never felt correctly. Yeah. I call the line out, so I call it to Mick Galway, the safest pair of hands I could find in the line out. Yeah. He's caught it. Happy days. We just went off. Yeah, steel's <laughs> broken. I'm into it. That's Correct. A, what good friend. <laughs> Speaking of the hair, the mullet, what's the story? Why? I'm a, I'm a rocker, a metal at heart. So if I, who's your if favorite I watch, band? Like, what's your favorite band? Like, if you right now could just be like, all right, I'm going to have a lot of fun. I'm going to listen to some. What, who are you going to listen to? Well, it depends what I want to get going. Like, if I'm going for a run and I'm running up a hill and I need a bit of anger, I'd be going Pantera or System oh, Down or something like that. Like, like, oh, yeah. Iron Maiden, Metallica, you know, oh, good. name it. With a good Irish, you know, even rock like Tin Lizzy or anything like that. Yeah. Listen, if I wasn't married, I'd have hair down to my ass. So, you know, so, he just won't let me. You know, and that's, that's just the way it is. So, look, I, that's like, there's nothing everyone thinks that it's, oh, it's a statement, isn't it, Jai? No. You know what I mean? I'm just a, a metler at heart. That's awesome. Do you play guitar or anything or drums? Drums, yeah. Drums. I had to go with the drums for a good yeah. long time. A long time. But like, Drums that I learned were just smashing the hell out with the drums, yeah. playing along to like a back in black or something like that. Yeah. You know, it looks like you hurt you with the way it should be. No. Yeah, no. just hit it. So we have right. two boys, five years old, twins, and their older sister, Piper, she's seven. She plays the violin and she loves like kind of the really nice music and it's nice to hear her play. And the other day I was talking to the boys and I was like, what instruments do you guys want to learn how to play? And James pipes up. He's like the trumpet. I was like, oh, God. And then Charlie jumps up the drums. I'm like, <laughs> we build like you're, a part of the house. They... You're not getting any sleep. Yeah. That's it. Oh. Forget about it. Oh, really? All the instruments. It's brilliant. And I think, I think everybody should go behind me and support those children in getting what they want. I think drums and trombone. You know, I think you'd be a terrible father if you don't let them. Uh, yeah. See, now I'm guilted into it. <laughs> This is too bad. It's trouble. All right. Speaking of making a lot of noise, the Lions tour to New Zealand. How was that? Yeah. I'm an amazing experience. The Lions, I can honestly say that in my career, I never once dreamt of being a Lion. Never. Because that to me was where the legend lived. Yeah. That's where the JPRs, you know, the, the Burger Slattery, Willie John McBride. Yeah. That's where they all lived. And, uh, you know, your only ambitions were obviously to do the step up, you know, to get to play for Leinster, you know, to get to play for Ireland, God, particularly about the time I had to wait to get for Ireland. That was just, I was fully obsessed with that for a long, long time. Yeah. But the Lions, all of a sudden you're in a scenario where you're aware that there's a, a tour coming up, 03, 04, you're still playing with Ireland and things are going well. You know, you start to allow it to be uh, suggested that you might, you might get picked and, you know, and then it comes about, it's just absolutely amazing. I'll always remember when we, when we got together, uh, we met in the Vailical Morgan in Wales and uh, one of the coaches came up to us or, or in the big, we gathered up and he said to us, right, gents, you are now, when we close this door, you are now officially alive. He said, for the rest of your life. That is a, 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 a tag or a mantle that you will have forever and nobody can take away from you. And it was a real dawning moment. You know, it was like, bloody hell, you know, this is fantastic. Magic. 
And then you just get on with it and, and the professionalism and, and uh, hunger and drive start to into you and, and you, like your focus becomes very much that you want to play in the test. Yeah. You have to do well. And it, it's, you know, everybody talks about the Lions stores and, you know, people who don't realize it, but rugby, they don't, you know, they all go, whack. best of four countries. They should be easily able to beat one country. You don't have continuity. Yes, it is so hard to get that together to trust, particularly in the front row and the pack where a lot of the things you do, you know, your safety depends upon these guys doing the jobs and you've been comfortable with what they're doing. So it takes an awful lot of time to get that together. And in Paris, they did a good job. They, we, we had a massive, massive squad and it was very hard thing to do. And, you know, you get out there on the tour and New Zealand is a very hostile place, as you can imagine. Yeah. And, you know, revel in that. I love that kind of thing. And, but the, the tour kind of split into two separate, you know, Wednesday, Saturdays, and I end up at the Saturdays and Wednesdays, like so much so that, you know, Malcolm O'Kelly would have been my good mates. Like, you know, we're on the same tour and there would have been a, possibly about a good two weeks when I never saw him. Crazy. Never laid eyes on him, you know, which is yeah. crazy. And, you know, Robinson, or the, you know, the, the Clive Woodward nice. and them. You yeah. know, they, they got it, they got it slightly wrong, you know, in the sense that they tried, they had won the, the World, the Cup. World Cup and brilliant English side. And they tried to bring the methods that they used in that O3 to the O5 line, separate rooms and things like that. And it was yeah. a mistake. It, it, it was, it took years to put that together yeah. for England. And it was a mistake, unfortunately. And in fairness to him, very honorable. He said to everyone that, look, I'm going to give everyone the same amount of minutes before the test so that I give everyone a chance to get on the test team. Yeah. And he probably shouldn't have done that because he should have settled on his team beforehand and just said, right, I'm going to have to cut. Sorry, lads. Yeah. But because, because of injuries and things like that that we were having, that's what he should have done. But honorably, he didn't. But like, listen, I can't complain because look, that's probably what got me in the door in the test yeah. and I featured in, in, in all the tests. That's you know, the one where O'Driscoll got hurt, right? The Tanu Manga, is that that, is that that tour? Yeah. yeah. Crazy that the, the power that New Zealand were able to wield back then, that there was no repercussions whatsoever. Like, I'm not even pretending that, like, the debate shouldn't even go that way. They didn't intend on doing, on popping his shoulder. The plan wasn't, listen, the first time when we get him on the rope, you lift that leg, I lift this leg. Yeah. Flip him over, and then he'd pop his shoulder. If Brian had put his arm here as opposed to here, it wouldn't have dislocated. Yeah. Nothing, nothing would have happened, and everyone would just thought, oh, terrible tackle, and yeah. away we go. But the fact is, what they did was illegal. Yeah. And it's there should have been repercussions, and it wasn't. And that's the thing. It was an amazing high to be on the line, but it, it was a massive low, huge. Like when we lost that first test, so, like I called the, all the lineouts and the scrums in the first test, and the lineouts fell apart. We changed the calls the week they were, they were afraid that New Zealand had their lineout calls, so we changed the calls going in first. The days going into the test, we changed oh. the call, which, which was lunacy, absolutely yeah. lunacy. So they weren't bedded in for the guys. And I remember we were in trouble when I called a call, one of the first lineouts, and I called a call, and I was looking down the lineout. And the guy who I was throwing it to, I knew he didn't know what the call was. Yeah. Oh my God. And it's a, already you have a tour that with people that don't have consistency and cohesion. Yeah. 
and things that are happening to make that even worse, to compound that the advantage like, the opposition have. And like I look, but regardless, the line outs were my responsibility and they didn't work. So, you know, put the handle. So it was amazing how something like up until that game, life just couldn't have been better. You know what I mean? You're about yeah. to play a test for the Lions. Everything is coming to this point. And then after that game for your word to just shatter. Yeah. You know, it was such a massive, massive blow. You're still aware of what you're doing, but you're within that bubble. And, you know, the tour, like, you know, was absolutely amazing looking back on it. But the experience around the test. So tough. Wasn't that, yeah. Yeah. It wasn't nice at all. You were, was it, was Warren or Eddie? Who was your coach originally when you got selected? So for my first cap, with Warren. That was, okay. and, uh, that was his last game in charge with, with Ireland. And, and then he went, he went on to what? Eddie O'Sullivan came in, yeah. Yeah. Do you still stay in contact with either, both of them? I wouldn't. Sure. Social circles, from yeah. you, you know yeah. what I mean? Eddie does commentating and stuff like that. So you still bump into Warren as off doing what Warren does. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and like, yeah, no, that's not often in that respect, but that's, that's kind of what happens in like a rugby circle. I'm sure Alex, you know, well, is that you don't have to see these guys off, but when you do, it's like, you, yeah, you, you saw them yesterday. Yeah. Eddie's kind of, he was in the States for, for a long time. Yeah. Uh, he was super yeah. helpful in my career. I was the head coach of the, our university side, which was our effectively our under 22s, basically, if you, if other countries had yeah. that. And he would come on tours with us. He was, you know, he really served well when I was a young coach, which was, yeah, was fantastic. Eddie, when I was talking about earlier on those structures and everything like that, Eddie was the first really to get that out of the Irish team. That, yeah. You know, when, when we flipped into 2000, we had a terrible defeat against England in 2000. And Eddie came in and it's, he really hammered in those structures and, and put together from top to bottom all the support structures that the players needed on and off the pitch and the professionalism just ramped up from there. Yeah, and I think... And that's, you know, I, he, to me, he'd be the bedrock of what happened yeah. decades after. He, yeah, I think a lot of that came from his experience with Jack Clark and when he was with the US team at the 99 World Cup where we may not have had the skill sets amongst the players and the, and the talent. But, you know, probably what that American model of professional sport existed for a long yeah. time here, obviously, and then applying that into rugby, which is really yeah. cool. Transitioning out of playing, how did you get back into kind of working in the family business? How did that all come to be? Well, we're in the waste management game. have been for 40 plus years. Dad started the company back in 81. So I was lucky enough that I had something to go to yeah. afterwards. And you didn't um, want to be an engineer anymore or? Yeah. <laughs> now, engineering the front row is hard enough <laughs> yeah correct correct no it was it's good I tell you it was a strange one because the, you know as opposed to some players like we all know the transition can be quite racking and yeah. hard and a lot of guys and I found it a bit, bit difficult in the way like my wife tells a completely different story but you know it was some guys right, they have nothing to, to do afterwards and they find themselves really wandering but I, but the problem was I always had the business. I was always working in the business while I was still playing. And then all of a sudden, the way I was looking at it is that the thing I was put on this earth to do was gone. You know what I mean? All the other things you were saying, 
but the thing I want is gone. Yeah. And so that's listen, like tried all sorts of boxing, running, triathlons, everything, but I always ended up. Really? Oh yeah, yeah. Everything, anything. Just try to find that buzz. You yeah. know that buzz in the yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, the closest thing I came came to was a thing called adventure racing, which is basically cross country mountains and things like that. Because you're triathlon. <laughs> and but I always end up going back to play rugby. So like I made on the way up all the steps I made through the amateur game and stuff. And even including Gaelic football, I said I'd make them on the way back down. I did. But when I finished professional, I went back and played a couple of seasons with Black Rock Rugby Club. Nobody does and it. Then, it's amazing. And, and then after that, I went back and I played with my local junior club, where I, you know, very much first yeah. would have experienced anything in rugby. So I played with them for another three, four years. And then I, during that time, I went back to Ockram and played football, Gaelic, Gaelic. football yeah. for a season. Yeah. So like just to, Tick all the boxes just for That's the crack, awesome. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not saying I was any bloody good at it, but there you go. <laughs> but it worked. That's actually really impressive. So you got into acting yeah. for a little bit? Was that part of this like post rugby, like yeah. gonna find something to do? Well, listen, I have a motto. Life is for living. You know, you got to get out there and do it. And a friend of mine, Brendan O'Carroll, we all know is the actor he, of Mrs. Brown's Boys. He's rang me one day and he said, Jane, you know, you're, we're doing a movie. I was like, yeah. He said, well, listen, I've, I've written you a part. I, I want you to come down and start doing it. I'm like, I thought he was taking a mickey. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Like, oh. yeah. And so I went down and it, it was a, it was a main part. Now, obviously there was no bloody lines, no words. I just had to stand in the background and look heavy. You know, I could do yeah. that. We could look on. Right. <laughs> But I was a Russian, a Russian mobster. Uh, and okay. yeah, yeah. I got to pull this clip up for the podcast. It so. was, it was the number one movie around in our area and it did well all around the world. So I got to check it out. Yeah. 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 It's, it won't challenge you intellectually. You know. Maybe that's like metaphysical. Maybe it will because yeah. it won't. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you're not thinking about it. Nope. That's the problem. You know, your generation, a lot of guys have come out, not a lot, but you know, that with the head injuries and like that, what, how, how should that be managed? How can that change? Are we doing enough to manage well, that? There's a couple of things. The, the scenario, there's a few stages of this and, and like we all, and we do support them. That, like we all feed the guys who are suffering with these MND, yeah. Alzheimer's, anything like that. A terrible affliction, and the whole rugby community really does grow behind support. We just don't know enough. The problem is, is that how can it be that, like, I played senior rugby for 18 years? And how now, touch wood, obviously, how does a guy like Steve Thompson play in the same position for me for less than half the time I play? Right. And he has the affliction. Are some people genetically susceptible to these things? And, uh, you know, and why is it that two guys can go through the exact same amount of physical impact and one get it and one not? There's been hundreds of thousands of rugby players who've played the game and had no, you know, ill feeling or no problem. Why is that? We need to know these things. But the big thing in safety-wise and the, the fear for people is that, oh my God, you know, I can't have my kid playing this, you know, it'd be, 
you know, it could be detrimental. The, the game and the training that's, that created potentially the Steve Thompson, if indeed that is it, yeah. doesn't, doesn't exist anymore. Right. Those, the, the players playing now do not do the physicality we used to do. We yeah. used to go out, as you well know, Alec, we used to go out and beat the hell out Everything was hard all the time. For hours and hours and hours yeah. we used to beat the hell out of each other. And that's why literally like an hour and a half. You know, scrumming, a hundred scrums, you know, that's why, you know, if, if it is a direct line between all these impacts and these terrible afflictions, it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. That's like the game doesn't have that anymore. Yeah. That's, people need to understand that. So to me, the benefit, look, I have twin daughters who are 20 years of age. They both play. Oh, that's and, awesome. Yeah. And I coached them. And, <laughs> No, but it's they, the throwing thing. Yeah. But they uh, would like the benefits they get out of team sport, particularly, will far outweigh any of the potential. Yeah. Maybe any potential issues. Because it's still, even if, even if there was a direct line drawn, which there's not, there isn't a direct line. Even if yeah. there was a direct line, but it's such a minute, minute yeah. percent. You know, to me, the benefits just. Far, far. We, we, it's not like we have a functional MRI machine that we can put on a human that can then run down the field and make the decisions you have to make in rugby and all yeah. of those parts, like, and to see what, how it affects the brain, you know, potentially for a positive. I think a lot of, there's a lot of missing pieces here, but certainly, you know, I, I would, I would concur well, that you, my experience was one that was so, the, the benefits so far outweighed taking nothing away from potentially what's happened to us. Nobody, nobody pretend that rugby isn't the wrong word dangerous part physical game a, physic, a physically challenging game that's yeah. why we love the game if you talk to the players now the way the game is the way they like it. all they want is the protection from the, the coaches and the referee staff yeah. that's what they want and that's what we need to see going on and listen who knows we, we could end up in a scenario where medical science can catch up in this and maybe it is that People are genetically susceptible to it. So therefore, you might get a kid that goes, is told, listen, you can never play yeah. contact sport. You just, your genetics, you yeah. can't do it. You're susceptible to CGT. You're susceptible yeah. to these things. So I'm sorry, you can never play physical sport. Yeah. But that, I guarantee you, if that day ever does come, it could be such a tiny, tiny minute yeah. amount of people. But it is, listen. It's the rugby family out there, man. Anywhere like Dottie Ware is a good friend. Steve Thompson was on the Lions with me. These yeah. guys, it's, it's terrible to see it happening. And we do everything we can. Yeah. Well said. Well said. We're going to jump into the rapid fire. Cool. This is, yes. How often do you get a haircut? Maybe. You want the truth? Twice or three times a year, maybe. The yeah. same woman has cut my hair since I was 19. Oh, wow. Unless wonder- just... Let's just say she hasn't put her kids through college with what she's earned from me. That's for sure. I'm about the same three times a year. So we're good. Hardest part about retiring from the game. Missing the crack. Isn't that that's yeah. the toughest part? And even gone from like coaching then into the business side of it. That's what I miss the most is the relationships. Yeah, to, you, you could call in the, you could call in physical challenge. Challenge yourself, but. Yeah. You're missing the crack. The changers. You're either you're either coming from or going to take in the mixer. And a, that's and a, rugby. 
Yeah, I had a board member the other day ask me, you know, what, why do you, why do you keep coming back to the game, you know, in all these different aspects? And it's just because it's fun, you know, like the game is just fun. And when you're a player, that's the most fun, you know, like you're, you're working hard together, you're winning together, you're losing together, learning about yourselves together. Listen, I, I'm 51 years of age and I'm still playing. I go out and I play. Really? Classic. Yeah, yeah. I organize the game. Do you have to wear those like pink shorts or anything? No, not quite yet. <laughs> Short and fat, you see. I'm, I'm, you have a stone, yeah. But that's 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 the reason why. Like, we play we play a classic tournament, Ireland versus England, the day before the Six Nations game every single year. Really? And uh, yeah, we've raised two, two point something million in, for charity so far. Oh, and, and we play it for charity. And you get lads who have just retired, guys who like old gits like me, and we love it. And for half an hour aside, we were back at it. That's awesome. Is it physical? Like, is oh, it has to be because you're playing against guys who have just retired. Oh wow! So you so basically the rules are uncontested scrum because we're old. Yeah, and rolling sub. So basically, if you're if you're stupid enough to make a big break, you can have your heart attack on the side of the pitch while someone else comes on. Yeah, but but the the fun and the physicalness is is it's full on and it's great, crack, But there's no anger in. See, yeah. It's amazing the difference in it. There's no anger. So when you get a guy a good tackle, he's going to, oh, good, yeah. good. Like, well, you go and you go on, you know. But it's all because we all miss the cracking. Last one. When I ask everybody, if you were running the free jacks today, what's, what would you be focusing on? Oh, man. Consistency. You know, setting a, setting a bar, setting a level that, you know, pick your best game, pick your best performance and go that the minimum. We don't duck below that. Yeah. What did it take to hit that bar in the first place? What, 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 how did, what did we get right that week? What were the things that we did well? Do it again. Train, did we eat, did we nutrition? And then that, the mailing. Do we not go below there? And run that. Love that. Shane, brilliant. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Full Contact CEO. Stay tuned for a slate of exciting guests in the world of sports, rugby, business, and of course, the Free Jacks. Don't forget to subscribe and make sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook for all the latest updates. Let's ride. Shane, brilliant. So good to connect. Thank you. Take care. Brilliant.